Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The House has new rules and committee assignments in the wake of California Republican Kevin McCarthy's selection as speaker, as members of President Biden's former team find classified documents uh, in his post-vice presidential office, as well as garage in Delaware, uh, reporting the findings to the National Archives, in turn prompting the Attorney General to appoint a special counsel to investigate uh, an issue that a Republican-led House is likely uh, to try to take advantage of. Uh, the Biden administration is considering sending M1 tanks to Ukraine as Britain weighs sending Challenger tanks as well, uh, as Russia claims to have recaptured a small Ukrainian town, Soledad, a claim that Kiev rejects. This as Vladimir Putin replaces battlefield commanders as one of our number uh, reported uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Biden also met with his Mexican and Canadian counterparts for a summit with mixed results. In Asia, Japanese and U.S. leaders are meeting as Tokyo continues to shift its defense spending and strategic planning to bolster its military capabilities to better deter China as concern grows worldwide about the presence of Chinese police stations around the world in places where there are large Chinese communities. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security, uh, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts uh, podcast, a must for anybody interested uh, in following the transatlantic uh, relationship as well as the Atlantic Alliance, uh, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Greetings, everybody, and glad to have you uh, all uh, join us. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and HII, our naval warfare coverage. And check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, uh, sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. And over the course of uh, the last week, went daily on their podcast. Uh, from the Surface Navy Association's uh, annual symposium and coverage that was sponsored by Leonardo DRS, HII, as well as uh, GE Marine. Uh, the downlink uh, with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, and starting uh, next week, our new Air Power podcast, uh, sponsored by GE Aerospace and co-hosted uh, by our contributing editor, JJ Gertler, and yours truly. Uh, Michael, uh, let's uh, start with you. Uh, you joined us uh, last week for the Friday Roundtable before Kevin McCarthy was speaker, and you were kind enough to join us on the uh, Sunday Business Roundtable uh, after Kevin McCarthy was selected as uh, speaker. We now have rules uh, passed. We have committee assignments that have made new uh, committees uh, established, and of course, we've got new uh, members uh, as well. Talk to us a little bit about the uh, deals and promises Kevin McCarthy made to become speaker and what those promises may functionally mean for everybody, especially in the national security space. Well, you're right. So when we uh, recorded our show last Friday, we did not have a speaker yet. It wasn't clear we would have one. But late Friday night on the 15th ballot, after a lot of drama and deal making and some intervention by the former President Trump, uh, McCarthy was able to win with, I think, six Republicans voting present and none of them voting against him. Uh, now, as you mentioned, that required a lot of deal making uh, with both in and outside of the rules package. Uh, there's a lot of paper circulating, outlining handshake deals. Members say that they got uh, some members are openly talking about what they got in exchange for their vote, which is really complicating uh, their messaging. And, uh, you know, here we are a week after. And a lot of lawmakers are wondering what did he promise? What did McCarthy promise and who did he promise it to? Um, and, you know, there's some concern that some of the framework that's evolving will make the Congress, uh, the, the House, really unworkable over the next two years. And, you know, there's a lot of things out there. I'll just summarize just a few of them, and especially the ones that are relevant to national security. But, you know, one of the most important ones is that any one member can call for a motion to vacate the chair. Uh, we talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, McCarthy had said it's a red line, uh, and, and it was now it is not. Uh, so that really means that one member can really upset the apple cart. Uh, McCarthy agreed that his super PAC 
would not play in open primaries, which means that the club for growth and ultra right wing uh, PACs will be able to uh, select or at least influence more of the voters in open seat primaries, which could really change the dynamics of the House in, in future years. There'll be more Freedom Caucus members on committees. We'll talk more about that later because those are on committees that impact us. Um, they're going to restore the Holman rule, which again will be used to um, try and defund the, the special prosecutor and other enemies of the Republicans in the administration. Uh, and they're going to select it. You know, the uh, many select committees are going to create when we'll talk about some of them because some were already created this week. One of which will be a subcommittee on uh, the origin of the coronavirus pandemic, which will you know have you know uh, uh, twelve Republicans and five Democrats. So that will be a, a very very partisan uh, effort. Um, so the two that I think are most important for us is one, uh, the efforts to raise the debt ceiling must be paired with spending cuts. And that's going to cause a, a huge problem when that ripens uh, this summer. And uh, you know what the Republicans are, I think, privately hoping for is the Democrats uh, file a discharge petition along with you know five moderate Republicans and force a vote on the floor. But that's a long process that would take time to do. And we really could come up to the brink uh, of a default, which is a lot of things a lot of these Republicans don't understand. Many of them think it's a government shutdown, and it's really not a government shutdown. It's, it's far worse than that. And those moderate Republicans who do support a discharge petition are really putting their careers on the line because all of them will face Republican primaries for doing so. And you know, most importantly for us, uh, they did agree to cap uh, discretionary spending for FY24 at FY22 levels. Now, that is not in the rules package, but that is a deal that McCarthy has made uh, with the Freedom Caucus. And on top of that, uh, any uh, stopgap funding measures or you know, CRs, uh, they've agreed will be at 98% funding levels uh, of the previous year, uh, not 100%. Now, that's something the Senate is never going to go for. Uh, same on the FY22 levels. And they've also said they will not conference with the Senate unless the Senate agrees to those, those levels. Uh, so it's really prompted some interesting reactions, actually, from you know Democrats in the House and Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. I mean, in fact, twelve uh, House Democrats sent uh, McCarthy a leader expressing concern about what this means for possible defense cuts. Uh, that uh, this will undo the bipartisan consensus right. in support of a right. national defense and endanger a long-term national security. I mean, there are things in this letter that you would have expected Republicans to be writing. And they say at a time in which our adversaries are developing ever more sophisticated lethal military capabilities, it is crucial that Congress continue to provide necessary and steady funding to our armed forces. And that's coming from Democrats. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, Senator uh, John Cornyn, you know, said our friends in the House have to realize that what passes the House doesn't necessarily, you know, pass the Senate. And we're seeing some strong bipartisanship from the uh, leaders of the Appropriations Committee in the Senate. Both Murray and Collins released a joint statement today about doing things in a bipartisan manner. Uh, but, you know, look, we've just finished the first week of the Republicans, uh, you know, uh, with a functioning uh, government to, to, uh, to some degree, and they passed a lot of messaging bills. So the first thing they passed was, you know, defunding the 87,000 new IRS employees, uh, which they dubbed the Family and Small Business Taxpayer Protection Act. Uh, and I saw several members tweeting uh, the excitement about how in their first week in Congress that they've now defunded 87,000 IRS agents. Well, they haven't. I mean, that bill is going to die in the Senate, and, if, and it would never even be signed into law. Uh, they doubled down on the abortion message, which did not play well for them in the last election, and passed two messaging bills on abortion. Uh, and they did create a select a subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. Again, that will be a hugely uh, partisan exercise, and they want to model it you know, after the old church committee, uh, and they forget that, you know, the church committee really undermined uh, uh, the U.S. intelligence mission. And these are things that really could undermine uh, uh, FBI and our intelligence agencies. And they also forget that the Trump administration weaponized government, that, you know, Trump's IRS did uh, audit uh, Comey and Andrew McCabe. Uh, and also, you know, it was not very cooperative with, with the Democratic Congress. So I think um, the one, you know, bright shining light uh, at the end of this week was that the overwhelming bipartisan vote to create the committee uh, to investigate China. You know, I think this is always our, our part of the podcast. We get to reap praise on Congressman Mike Gallagher. Uh, and I think that the fact that Kevin McCarthy mentioned that Gallagher would be the chairman of this uh, select committee beforehand helped with that enormous bipartisan vote. I mean, 365 members voted uh, to create this committee. And Gallagher is committed uh, to keeping this bipartisan. And this is to be one of the only a bright shining lights as far as getting bipartisan legislation passed out of the Congress. I think Mike's going to do a good job of not only raising awareness of issues that people are unaware of, how serious our challenges are when it comes to China on so many levels, but trying to come up with bipartisan uh, legislative solutions.
Uh, well, look, I mean, he is, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, we should admit that, uh, you know, we, we all know him uh, well, um, and he's uh, a friend of the program. Uh, he's also somebody who's extremely strategically minded. Uh, and, um, you know, everybody's convinced that he's the right guy for the right job at the right time. Uh, and no, we'll do, we'll do a terrific job on that. Um, let me uh, go to, uh, you know, and by the way, I'm going to disagree slightly on the church commission. The church commission also highlighted a lot of stuff the U.S. intelligence community was doing that was highly problematic, including uh, spying on Americans. And so we created a lot of mechanisms uh, in the process in order to protect average Americans and, and also misuses and abuses that we'd seen in, uh, you know, whether in the Nixon administration, but also earlier uh, in that. So there, there were some very positive things that came with it in terms of better checks and balances, uh, including uh, better congressional oversight over stuff that, you know, no, no, uh, you know switches nobody was minding. Um, talk to us a little bit um, about the uh, individuals uh, who are in, who are going to be leading some of these committees uh, and what they mean. And then I want to go to Dove uh, about what it means from a Pentagon comptroller's uh, standpoint and some options, because I know he's had some pretty important conversations over the course of the last week as well. Go ahead, Michael. Sure. So uh, they've, uh, the Republicans have named uh, new members uh, for the Appropriations Committee. I won't name all of them, but there are some that are significant. So uh, Scott Franklin, Stephanie Bice, and Jerry Carl where all members of the House Armed Services Committee are now on the Appropriations Committee. So that, I think that's a very positive thing that more pro-defense members on, on the committee. Uh, but McCarthy did keep his promise to the Freedom Caucus and appointed two new Freedom Caucus members to the Appropriations Committee, uh, Congressman Michael Cloud from Texas and Congressman Andrew Clyde from Georgia. You know, again, having more Appropriations members on uh, the, uh, having more Freedom Caucus members on the Appropriations Committee does prevent challenges to get these bills um, out, of, out of committee and onto the floor. Uh, and then they announced the new Cardinals. Uh, so Ken Calvert will again chair the Defense uh, Subcommittee. Uh, John Carter from Texas will again chair the Military Construction and Veterans Affairs Committee. Uh, Mary Diaz Bellart, who's on the Armed Services Committee, is now chairing a new, a different subcommittee. He's going to chair the State and Foreign Operations Subcommittee. And uh, Dave Joyce from Ohio will be chairing the Homeland Security Committee. And again, they did keep their promise to the Freedom Caucus. Andy Harris, the member of the Freedom Caucus, is chairing a subcommittee. He is a cardinal. He is chairing the Agriculture and Rural Development uh, Subcommittee. And that will pose a major challenge when it comes to uh, things like funding uh, food stamps, et cetera. Uh, and then House Armed Services Committee will name its new members on the Republican side on Monday next week. Uh, and it looks like there could be as many as 11 openings on that committee. Uh, so we could see a lot of new uh, members of the House Armed Services Committee. And we do expect to see at least one or two uh, House Freedom Caucus members. I've been told who it probably will be. I'm hoping it won't be uh, this person, but we will find out uh, Monday afternoon. And then the Democrats are expected to start populating their, their committees uh, for the following week, uh, the week of the, uh, of the 22nd. Uh, Dove, uh, let me uh, bring you uh, into the discussion. Uh, what's the impact of all of this, looking at it from the perspective of a former comptroller? What's the impact going to be on the department? Well, uh, I, I was at the uh, Ash Carter Memorial yesterday, and there were four of us former comptrollers. So I'll give you sort of a sense of, of what people are thinking. Uh, look, everybody's absolutely upset about this $75 billion go back to fiscal 22 stuff. Uh, the the, the uh, authorizers, uh, my guess is, uh, will a conference in the end, I can't see the House not conferencing on, on the authorization. The real issue, of course, is the appropriators. And there, uh, it seems to me that having separate appropriation uh, bills with a separate defense bill, yes, it could be held hostage to uh, domestic spending, but it's less of a hostage uh, than uh, I think it would be if it were part of one of these massive uh, omnibuses or even what some people have been called uh, calling minibuses, which still would uh, tie defense to other appropriations. And uh, if that's the case, uh, then yes, it, it, it would be less of a hostage because we know that the, uh, the, the uh, extreme right wingers in the House are, are dead set against, and McCarthy is too, and, and a lot of the other Republicans against one of these massive omnibus bills. So, you know, there may be a, a silver lining in that cloud. And of course, 
if they do conference, then, you know, the number's not going to go all the way down. Uh, but still, there's a lot of angst about this. Uh, there's a, a big discussion going on as to whether the United States is really facing the possibility of a two front confrontation with both Russia and China at the same time. It's the worst time in the world to have these kinds of shenanigans going on. Uh, but there we are. Uh, shenanigans, uh, indeed. Uh, Michael, I want to go back to you uh, on uh, the $75 billion uh, uh, number and what we now, uh, what more we know now than we did uh, before. Uh, and also ask you how the Biden uh, documents uh, matter. Uh, right. Folks have chided uh, the president and said, well, they should have made that disclosure earlier. They should have made it uh, you know, before the election, because it appears that it was around. It was slightly before the election that they uh, discovered these documents. On the other hand, I think that they saw what happened to Hillary Clinton and all of that and where that would go. Uh, president has said he didn't know anything about the documents. So there's a, considered to be a big difference between the Trump situation and the Biden uh, situation, irrespective. Uh, you know, the media is trying to appear. Uh, fair-minded and and give Biden uh, as as much criticism as they gave Trump, even if the circumstances are different. Uh, and at the end of the day, Republicans want to score points uh, with this, as as any major political party would. You know, talk about the seventy-five, but also how the the documents issue uh, plays into the entire calculus, whether or not Joe Biden knew anything about it, or whether the special counsel absolves him or or otherwise. Right. So look, uh, first with the $75 billion number, this becomes very complicated. And that's the number that's being tossed out because if we went back to FY22 uh, defense numbers, it would be a $75 billion cut. But you know, they're, they're talking about being a little cute in how they interpret FY22 spending levels. They're looking at it as what's called the 302A number, which would be the top line number for the Appropriations Committee. The 302B numbers are the individual allocations that each subcommittee gets that adds up to the 302A number. So what they're saying they would do is go to the top line number of 302A, but not continue uh, or repeat the same numbers that each subcommittee was given in 22. So they could then take more money out of non-defense and put it into defense to make up that 75 billion and maybe add to it to keep pace with inflation. Uh, but even if they were able to do that, that would decimate the non-defense bills because they'd already be getting a 75 to $80 billion cut. Then you're cutting another 75 billion on top of that. They would never be able to get their way out of committee or even off the floor or conference with the Senate. And if you added money to the defense bill, I would argue that if it did get to the floor, that the Freedom Caucus guys would oppose that as well. Uh, so I, I just still see this as, as, as unworkable. Uh, and, uh, you know, we still, we still have time, but the process is going to move. The committees are forming and uh, they're going to start scheduling uh, markup dates and floor dates. So uh, it's, we will know in the coming months how this is going to play out. Now, as far as the Biden and the documents, look, I agree with you. I, I think the situation with Biden is far different than the situation with Trump, but uh, it, this is great uh, fodder uh, for the Republicans on Capitol Hill. It's great fodder for the, the investigations uh, that they're creating. I think Merrick Garland had no choice but to appoint a special counsel, but I don't think it's going to deter the special counsel for the work that he's doing against Trump uh, and also uh, the other investigations outside of the classified, classified documents. There's investigations going on against uh, Trump as far as January 6th is concerned, his actions before and leading up to it the day of, uh, obstruction of justice. Uh, and in and the situation with the documents, I mean, Trump had over you know, well over 325 documents. At first he said the FBI planted them there. Then he said, they're mine, I want them back. Uh, so, I mean, if you really put these two side by side, the behavior of the Biden folks is much different, although still not perfect and, and concerning that classified documents are finding their way into his garage and into his old office. But right-wing media will have a field day with this and so will House Republicans. Um, I, I should uh, uh, also uh, point out that uh, I think it was today or yesterday, uh, uh, the Trump organization, I think, paid a $1.6 million uh, fine uh, for financial uh, impropriety. Um, I'm going to keep uh, the discussion uh, moving unless anybody has anything they want to add. Uh, to yeah, this, uh, I, I, I do. Go, go ahead, Dov. I, I think, uh, I, although I respect Mike's expertise, which is far greater than mine on the on how Congress works. But I think if a defense bill came to the floor, uh, even uh, first of all, the, the, a lot of Democrats and I think a lot moderate Republicans would get it passed. Uh, secondly, even the, the some of these uh, Freedom Caucus guys, the ones from Texas and Georgia that Mike mentioned, it's going to be very hard for those guys with from states with huge defense 
uh, facilities to uh, simply mess around with the defense budget. Uh, it could lose them their, their seats. And so uh, even if they're from relatively safe seats in parts of the state that don't have a, a base of some kind, it'll blow back on them. And I wouldn't expect them to be as anywhere near hard over on these issues as uh, somebody like Matt Gates. Michael, counterpoint before we move on? Yeah, look, uh, I think that if by some miracle they were able to get a defense bill out of committee at the expense of the non-defense bills, uh, that Democratic leadership would still whip against that bill uh, and it would be very difficult uh, to pass. So I just still think that these numbers that they're looking at are unworkable. And look, I agree with you, Dub. I think, I think signs have changed on the Hill as far as members and their constituencies. And you have a lot of these Freedom Caucus guys that come from defense states that are still determined to cut spending, whether it's defense or non-defense. And in the end, it all matters. What matters is the primary. And uh, the voters that come out in the primary are a very small number of folks and a small number of folks that are very ideological. And I think some of these folks that are come from defense states uh, are still going to win their primaries, even though they support uh, cutting defense. Uh, so, uh, you know, look, I think we are in uncharted territory. We, we, we were in it last week with the vote, uh, the amount of votes it took to get a speaker, and we're going to be in it for the next two years. So we'll see how this plays out. But I'm right now not uh, optimistic. If anybody has any rabbit's feet, they should be rubbing them uh, right about now and uh, incantations and lots of prayers and candle lighting. Um, Jim, uh, you know, let's uh, talk a little bit about the Ukraine war, uh, a major step. All of us on this program have been calling for us to do more and more quickly for the Ukrainians. Uh, it looks like we're getting air defense systems over there. Uh, last week was the decision uh, to send Bradley firing vehicles, AMX, French AMX-10s, uh, as well as German Martyrs, a very positive week, although those are armored fighting vehicles. Now this week, um, you know, first we started hearing that London was going to send Challenger tanks, uh, the nation's uh, one of the uh, best uh, main battle tanks in the world. Uh, and now talk that the United States is going to be sending over uh, M1 tanks, uh, you know, it was sort of brushing aside a lot of these Russian concerns. And we also had uh, a change of command. Dove talked about it uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that Surovikin is out and uh, Valery uh, Gerasimov uh, is back in. Um, walk us through what this evolution means for the future of this conflict if the United States is starting to give the kind of weapons the Ukrainians have been calling for consistently for a long time. They want combat aircraft as well. They also want longer weapons like ATACMS. What route are we on and how is the complexion of this conf uh, conflict changing uh, as we seem to be doing the kind of things that we should have been doing a lot earlier in this conflict? Well, let me start first by going back to, I think the, uh, it was you, Vago, who was talking about rubbing uh, rabbit's foot uh, and how, um, how dismal things seem on the Hill. And if you go to Europe right now and go to European capitals, there's a lot of rabbit's feet being rubbed there as well. Uh, and particularly in Kyiv, uh, this whole uncharted territory, as Michael said, um, is, is uncharted territory for the allies too. Uh, and and I think I think the anxiety level in Europe continues to grow as they see the implications of what happened uh, last week, um, and it's becoming clearer and clearer to them that, uh, that 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 the U.S. is really unpredictable. And I think for Moscow too, uh, Putin is certainly looking on this um, this you know this trajectory as giving hope to him. Who you know we all know Putin is playing for time. Uh, and he certainly feels that over time, uh, the U.S. is going to weaken. He's probably interpreting uh, the moves over the past week as a sign of U.S. Uh, you know, growing uh, less interested in, in Ukraine assistance. So uh, I, think, I think when you look at uh, the war in Ukraine and from a European perspective or a perspective from Moscow, uh, this just does not bode well uh, for the future in terms of how the U.S. might play. And so in terms of rabbit's feet, I think uh, there's a whole bunch of rabbits in Europe right now that are missing a foot uh, as they're being used to uh, try to bring better luck in terms of how the U.S. plays with, with Ukraine. Your point, though, on the uh, Bradleys and, um, and what does this mean? I think this certainly points to a couple of things. One is, you know, um, we're all glad that this has happened. Uh, the, you know, the administration has gotten over its anxiety, at least in terms of Bradleys. Uh, Bradleys are going to be absolutely critical if there's going to be a, um, an offensive of uh, Ukraine offensive this spring. 
You're going to need Bradleys, but more importantly, you're going to need tanks to go along with those Bradleys. Um, the Challenger 2, that's great news, but I'm not so sure how many Challenger 2s are going to be sent over. The, the number 50 is in my mind. I'm not sure if that's correct or not. The Martyrs are great there too, but they need Leopards, uh, Leopard 2s to work with. Um, uh, you know, And so I think there's a lot of hope right now that somehow the Germans are going to find a way uh, to provide those Leopard 2s but that's going to depend on what the U.S. does. I think the polls uh, yesterday or day before have come up with an idea of where there's a consortium of European nations to provide Leopard 2s. Well, you know, whatever works as far as I'm concerned, but it does seem that Berlin is looking at Washington uh, and they want to hide behind a Washington release of those, of those uh, Abrams uh, tanks. And I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm more optimistic now that the Bradleys have gone out that maybe they're going to release uh, some of the uh, Abrams as well. I understand the logistics problems with that in terms of fuel consumption, in terms of uh, maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. But those Bradleys uh, need to be working with an Abrams. They can work with T-72s and T-80s, I guess, but I'd rather have the Bradleys there because that means we're going to have Leopards there as well if the Germans go ahead and, and do uh, release after the U.S. does. The bottom line here is if we're going to have an offensive that's going to count uh, in the spring in terms of Ukraine, they're going to need as much armor and IFBs as they can get their hands on because the Russians are using this time to dig in. And this is going to be a just a bloody context, contest that they're going to need this kind of, of equipment and they're going to need a lot of munitions along with them. Uh, and so of, of all times for the Americans of Congress, to look uh, wobbly, um, and, and you know, I, I, granted, this is a small group of of, of extremists there in the House, but um, but we've got an offensive in the future. We're starting to get the, the Ukraine uh, uh, prepared for that. We're doing a lot of training, as you know, uh, to help them in combined arm maneuver warrior maneuver warfare. So we're setting up um, we're setting up the Ukrainians to do this. And we're going to have to be there for them uh, into the summer and into the fall as this offensive uh, takes hold and they ex have an expenditure of munitions uh, that are going to have to be replaced. So, uh, so anyway, bottom line here is happy about the Bradleys. Get them over there. Uh, we should be training Abrams uh, maintainers right now. We shouldn't wait uh, if, if, if at the end of the day we're going to go ahead and release those Abrams. We should really... Uh, start the prep work right now, but um, but let's see what happens and uh, and know that the clock is ticking. Uh, and I should point out uh, to the audience, you sound a little bit different than you normally do uh, on the program because you're on the move today and and uh, joining us, and and we appreciate that. Um, let me ask you a second question, uh, Jim, uh, on uh, the uh, Wagner uh, mercenary group uh, led by Dmitry right. Prigozhin, who's uh, emerged as a louder critic, uh, not just of uh, Shoigu, as we discussed last week, uh, but also Vladimir Putin himself takes a bold man uh, to try to do that. Uh, they appear to have focused on uh, the small uh, and uh, strategically unimportant town of Solodar, massive casualties on the Russian side. They claim to have taken it. The Ukrainians say they have not. Uh, Putin, meanwhile, as Dove uh, first reported, uh, demoted uh, General Suravikin, returned the operation to the command of the chief of the general staff, Dmitry uh, Valery uh, Gerasimov. What is all of this? You know, and, and, and now the stories are that Putin is really panicking. Putin may be panicking, but in some respects, you know, I mean, he's keeping the show on the road. There are no demonstrations. Russians continue to be locked up. Uh, and Russia is a very big country and, you know, we've hit him with sanctions, but the royal revenue is not that reduced. Right. I mean, to your point, he, he Putin's plan is to wait us out. Uh, he sees harder times for us downstream and he thinks he can make it through this. What what does uh, the Solodar stuff, but more importantly, uh, the shift uh, from uh, Servikin to Gerasimov means and Dov, I'll bring you in on this as well. Uh, and uh, again, thank Patrick for his patience, because then we're going to go. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about on the Asia side of the equation as well. But go ahead, uh, Jim. Well, on the Solodar, you know, that seems to be a uh, Russian tactic uh, in terms of, of attrition warfare. And it's amazing. They're, they're, the, the playbook that they're using, you know, dates back to World War II or World War I. But, but, but it's attrition that the Russians are taking the casualties. But I think they're gamble is that they're able to absorb more casualties than Ukraine can. 
And so they're going to sit there and they're going to try to, to suck Ukraine into a, a, uh, a ground warfare that's going to do nothing but weaken them. And Ukraine knows that. This isn't something that they are walking blindly into. Um, but I think this is something that also is very big symbolically. Uh, Putin needs a victory. Uh, and I think he feels that he's going to get that victory and the bill payer is going to be uh, the, by, it will be Ukraine. And, and so let's just see what happens. But it is frustrating to see this. Uh, Ukraine doesn't want to fight a war like this. And it goes back to what we we're saying about the armor and the Bradleys and this type of thing. To avoid that kind of warfare, you've got to be able to have maneuver warfare. They need to be to get out there and move. We saw what they could do during the summer uh, in a different kind of situation. So this just shows that we can't give the uh, Ukrainians their only option being some type of attrition warfare. They need the equipment to go on the offensive and to get out of that. Um, but on, on top of the, concerning the command changes, at the very, very top level, 30,000 foot level, we shouldn't be surprised that Putin is struggling to find a commander who can deliver what he needs delivered. Uh, obviously, he's not, uh, he's not getting that, so he's, um, he's, he's uh, sacking uh, there's his generals, he's making changes. This happens in warfare. So the 30,000 foot level, there's not, not so much a surprise. I think bringing in his chief of defense staff was a surprise to me because, I mean, those by the time you're the, uh, by the time you're the head of the military the way he is, you haven't commanded troops on the ground for decades. You're a political general. You're, you're better sitting around the table talking about uh, whatever they talk about strategy. It doesn't sound like they talk about strategy too much, but, but, but whatever he does as the chief, you know, that's not doing what he's doing now in terms of being in charge of what's happening in Ukraine. I think that's just, you know, so there's something else going on there. And, uh, and just to, as, a, as a point to make, I think if Putin is looking out for anybody who might be doing him in down the road as the head of the Wagner Group, uh, the Wagner Group is getting a lot of good publicity as being these tough guys. Um, they're, uh, they, they, of course, are not making the uh, Russian military very happy, seeing these criminals and others in Wagner come in and, and, and on the battleground. They're not doing such a great job either, so I understand. Uh, on the battleground. But I think in terms of the palace politics in Moscow, the head of Wagner Group is someone to, for Putin to fear more than some oligarch. Uh, or, maybe, or maybe the head of the Wagner Group puts together a coalition of oligarchs and they do in Putin down the road if Putin uh, seems to be wobbly or not giving, uh, giving what's needed in terms of, of leadership there. So, um, so I think what we're seeing at the, at the end of the day, what we're seeing is both trying to find a general that's going to be able to deliver, number one. And number two, he's gone in a crazy direction to find that, uh, that leadership. And I think that's going to reflect more of power politics in Moscow than anything else. We'll have to see. But uh, boy, he's also given uh, Gerasimov a poison chalice. Uh, you know, here, take a drink of this uh, and good luck to you in terms of, of command on the battlefield. Um, uh, Dove, uh, I want you uh, to weigh in. This was your story really briefly, and I do want to get to Patrick because I want to get his sense on how the escalating aid is being received by the Chinese, right? I mean, a lot of what we're doing here is to try to message to the Chinese uh, that we're serious, uh, change habits, uh, organize ourselves well. But give, give us give us your sort of read, uh, not just on Solidar. I mean, I also thought it was interesting. Uh, Secretary uh, Carlos del Toro at SNA sort of waded into this and said, hey, you know, if we, you know, in, in another six months of aid to Ukraine at this level, you know, the U.S. Navy is going to need help. People chided him because the U.S. Navy is not giving a lot of all that much help uh, to, uh, you know, whereas a lot of this is coming from the Army. Although the sentiment in the department is, you know, we are burning down uh, our stocks, uh, even if if some, um, you know, in the military establishment look at this and say, we're not really sure how, you know, how, how useful things, uh, you know, like javelins, for example, or or stingers or some of these systems we are sending to the Ukrainians will be in an Asia context. But that's a broader uh, question. Just kind of give us your sense on the on the Solidar uh, and, and Gerasimov elevation, uh, ultimately, and the demotion okay. for Surveikum. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, it, it's ironic. Uh, when I wrote the other week about this, I also mentioned that Putin in, 20, in 2013 had criticized, in effect, Stalin for appointing a buddy in charge of the war in Finland, the Winter War, Voroshilov, and, and then he had to remove him. And what he's done now is, is 
exactly what he criticized Stalin for. He removed a professional soldier. The guy is brutal, but he's a professional and he's been a winner. And he puts in his place a, a guy who a lot of people think isn't that great of a general to begin with and is certainly a Putin buddy. So that's why I still think Putin's floundering on this. Uh, and he's not the first. Look how long it took Lincoln until he found Grant. Uh, if you're not doing well in the field, you change your generals and you may change them a lot. Uh, his problem now is, uh, first of all, he's got a very resentful Surovikin, who, by the way, is popular with Prigozhin, the uh, head of the Wagner group. Uh, and so uh, it may not be Prigozhin and a bunch of oligarchs, as Jim thinks, but it could be Prigozhin together with Surovikin getting rid of this guy. And between the two of them, they're going to have a lot of guns. Uh, Prigozhin has been become very, very outspoken on this. Uh, people are suspecting that he wants to replace the defense minister. Uh, but uh, frankly, uh, it sounds more to me like he wants to replace the guy at the top. Uh, and so uh, and they've claimed that they're the ones, the Wagner group have claimed they're the ones who took Solidar. And that's gotten the, mil the regular military upset because they're claiming they took Solidar. And then Ukraine says nobody's taken Solidar yet. So uh, you've got a real mess going on there. A quick word about Carlos del Toro. Uh, I think what he was just trying to say was everybody's nervous about the stocks being run down. Uh, and uh, it, it, I think this is a tempest in a teapot. He's fundamentally reflecting the concern that the department has, as you just pointed out. Uh, and he's and he's somebody who has uh, kind of a deadpan sense of humor. Uh, although I, I must say I was not at uh, at the uh, at the particular uh, event. Uh, Patrick, a um, uh, lot uh, to discuss Japan, China, uh, but also uh, the United States has been trying to, um, uh, you know, at first it looks like the it looked like the the nuclear uh, nuclear threats that Putin uh, was making were working, uh, and we were self deterring. And now the administration is stepping up and systemically crossing almost every single one of the red lines that the Russians have put in front of us, basically saying, look, if we if we succumb to nuclear blackmail with the Russians, then we were are in a very problematic state uh, with the Chinese. What does the nature and the way that we are accelerating aid in the course of less than a month, we've gone from patriots to heavy vehicles to armor. Uh, and it's the United States is not doing that alone. We are doing that with our allies and partners uh, who are going to be sending a considerable amount of capability to the Ukrainians uh, to prepare them for next year. And if you start doing that, then maybe you are opening the door for ATACMS and for other kinds of systems, uh, maybe combat aircraft, which the Ukrainians have called for. What are the signals uh, that this is all sending from your perspective to the Chinese? And is it and are they the right signals? Well, given all this happening in Asia, I'm not sure that's the key issue for, for Beijing right now. They're obviously concerned about escalation. They're concerned about the cohesion and the strength and the alacrity with which uh, Western allies can move. Um, and the fact that countries like Japan, which is chairing the G7 this year, is is actually helping to mobilize Europe uh, in the West, if you will, um, uh, on on the Ukraine uh, defense front. Um, so that's uh, certainly of note to China. Um, China's mostly worried about the potential for escalation. They're, the one place they weighed in uh, that has been favorable has been to try to temper uh, Putin's uh, sort of escalation to nuclear levels, at least even talking about it. Um, but otherwise, China really doesn't want to see Russia fail, um, doesn't want to see Putin fail, wants, wants them uh, as part of this multipolar world that will uh, uh, take apart the Western uh, global order and replace it with something much more favorable for, for Beijing. So I, you know, they're watching um, the lessons that are drawn from the Ukraine war are getting updated monthly. And so your list of uh, what's happened even in the last few weeks, uh, Vago is exactly to the point that uh, China is going to be uh, updating their own lesson book uh, on this as they think about Taiwan scenarios, as they think about uh, where the United States and Japan and other allies and partners in East Asia might be prepared to go if there is a conflict in Asia in the future. You know, you said that there were a lot of other dynamic factors that everybody is paying attention to, or certainly the Chinese are paying attention to. Um, obviously, uh, the you know, we've been talking about the COVID uh, fatality uh, levels. Uh, what are all the other issues you think that are consuming uh, Chinese senior leadership bandwidth uh, now? And maybe use this as a transition to get to where we are. Uh, you know, my next question is going to be on the U.S.-Japan talks, but also 
the messaging, the extraordinary messaging we're seeing from Tokyo, and more importantly, this is not applauding Japan anymore. This is a Japan that's moving actually remarkably quickly. It's having implications on Okinawa, the kind of marine units that they want, where they want them. Kind of walk us, you know, start us off with how, you know, the things that are consuming Beijing's bandwidth, but then use that to expand into uh, Japan uh, and how Japan is playing actually a rather central role in expanding its capability and how the United States is working with them uh, to do that. And maybe talk a little bit about the uh, about the uh, Japan-U.S. meeting as well. Well, there are different ways to frame this uh, challenge. If you read David Ignatius's uh, latest essay in the Washington Post, uh, he talks about, as the global order phrase, the chain reaction uh, accelerates. And I think uh, that's partly uh, a, a sort of a good frame to, to see what's happening with both China as they worry about their own domestic order. The party state is still very much worried about the stuttering economy, the COVID uh, breakout, um, they're arresting protesters who are peacefully dissenting against the, the COVID policies of China, um, just as they are stepping up, uh, cracking down on the diaspora uh, around the world, the Chinese diaspora, who are also making noise and social media that get picked up. In fact, the FBI just put out two advertisements in Mandarin in Philadelphia um, asking for assistance in uh, trying to counter some of the uh, overseas police uh, activities, so-called police activities that the Chinese are engaged in. There was a great New York Times article this week about the nondescript office building in, in New York City where some of these activities are going on. And this was just one of more than 100 around the world. The point is that China's worried about their economy. They're worried about the, the party's legitimacy and political stability at home, first and foremost. But as a result of the, these things, what's happening uh, in the region on military and defense issues, you have a historic visit by Prime Minister Kishida this week. Uh, in his visit to the White House, this is his first visit to the White House since he was elevated to the Prime Minister's position in October of 2021. So even though he's been in regular contacts and face-to-face -face meetings with President Biden uh, and his predecessor, President Trump, um, this is his first visit. And it's a historic one because he's essentially declaring Japan uh, a NATO-like ally. Um, you know, he's, he's laid the groundwork to, by talking about nearly doubling Japanese defense spending in the coming uh, five years, uh, adding uh, offensive capability in the form of counter-strike weapons, um, exercising jointly with the United States and many other allies, including India, where we may be seeing the beginning of a, a Malabar-like um, multilateral exercise for, for uh, air forces. Um, this is this um, Guardian Veer 2023 exercise that's going to be taking place. U.S. India form, uh, or Japan rather, and India will form the, the core, but we'll likely see the other quad trilateral security dialogue uh, partners, U.S. and Australia, uh, and maybe others added on in, in the coming years. Um, we, we see also uh, declaring Article 5 commitment to space by the United States is another way in which the United States and Japan are more on a war footing um, uh, toward showing that this alliance is really reciprocal and that it actually has real teeth. It's not just a one-sided alliance uh, and it's not um, Japan of the past. It's not uh, the pacifistic constitution. It's rather a Japan as a more normal power that we've ever seen uh, since the post-war era. Uh, but it's doing it not on its own. It's not doing it unilaterally. It's doing it through the US-Japan alliance. It's doing it with other partners from the UK to Australia to Korea, to India, and so on. You know, as our uh, mutual friend Paul Giara would say, there's a lot of neuralgia uh, that surrounds uh, anything uh, that involves the word Japan and security and certainly increased uh, security. Um, what are some of the things that Japan is doing uh, regionally um, to uh, assuage, allay concerns, uh, some reporting about uh, South Korea interested in a nuclear weapon. It's unlikely the South Koreans would go nuclear and it not involve the Japanese or uh, another form of, uh, no pun intended, sympathetic, you know, domino effect or sympathetic detonations uh, in, the, in the region. Um, kind of w walk us through what Tokyo is doing. Um, because, you know, everywhere from the Philippines to everywhere else, there seems to be, we seem to be overcoming um mindset that's even if the Japanese continue to do things that annoy uh, some of their uh, partners, if not allies in the region. 
you know, since being vanquished at the end of World War II, I mean, Japan has been searching for its national identity, and it searched for it first as an economic power and a great civilian power, um, and it's had a, a great reluctance to shed the pacifistic constitution, and there's still major legal or hurdles and, and baggage to be uh, sort of shed uh, going forward. Um, there are also major budgetary issues. We, you know, we've had the announcement of a up to two percent GDP spending on defense over the next five years, but in reality, we're still at the one percent GDP or just over it. Um, so they have a ways to go in terms of operationalizing these these bold plans. But this time, it's believable because, uh, as Kurt Campbell and other officials have said this week uh, during the Security Consultative Committee uh, meeting, the two plus two meeting that happened this week, as well as the summit. Um, there's really been a series of wake-up calls here for Japan. They're reacting to a region that is uh, demonstrably more uh, sort of risk-laden. Um, you know, even while uh, Prime Minister Kishida has been in office, he's had to see Chinese and Russian heavy bombers fly near Japan on two separate occasions, um, you know, last May and then last November, uh, after the Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, he had to see Chinese missiles fly over, uh, over uh, Japanese uh, exclusive economic zone waters. Um, and uh, there are real concerns, as, as Korea talks about exponential nuclear growth, um, that Japan is going to have to do more on its own. It cannot just wait for the United States. So it's doing more with the U.S., as, for instance, the, the Marine littoral regiments that are being set up by the Marine Corps. Um, you know, that's that's a big step for Japan to allow that kind of armed anti-ship missile armed uh, group regiment to come into Okinawa um, and, and to kind of replicate it and work closely with Japanese forces. But Japan's doing the same thing with Australia and the trilateral and bilateral relations with Canberra and Washington uh, are moving forward. I mentioned Veer Guardian. Uh, the, you know, this is this air exercise that is just uh, taking place for the first time. They've had a lot of maritime focus. Now they're going into air as well as ground cooperation with the Indians and the other Quad uh, members, including Australia and the United States. They just signed a new deal in terms of uh, alliance-like agreement with the UK. Um, and, and it just goes on. The security assistance for the Philippines, for Vietnam, uh, for Indonesia, uh, is being stepped up. And as part of this two plus two uh, agreement this week, they also emphasize the trilateral cooperation with Korea, which is, again, very unusual for Japan um, to be talking about the importance of stepped up trilateral cooperation for missile defense, for intelligence, um, working with South Korea. All of these show, as indeed what Japan's doing with European allies, France and the UK and others, um, that uh, they are interested in working to support the global order and adapt it and preserve it. And that's a defensive, uh, positive contribution they're making to global and regional security. But they know that they have to have some kind of offensive capability. That's why they're adding counter-strike capability. That's why they're looking at protecting the space domain, because you can't have effective counter-strike weapons if you're not protecting your space assets, if they get knocked out. Um, and that's why they're looking at uh, joint exercises in the Southwest Island chain uh, with the United States to make sure that deterrence is maintained uh, in East Asia. They want deterrence to be maintained so they can move forward into the next uh, phase of uh, the global economy, which is going to be driven by this high technology where the competition is going to be on the, on the docket for discussion, uh, not just with this summit meeting with President Biden today, but but really in the coming weeks and months, including at the G7 summit in May. And, and uh, very, uh, very briefly, what do we expect to hear uh, after uh, the summit meeting today between Biden and Kushida? Well, I th again, I think we'll hear this declaration that Japan is uh, a, a normal power, a NATO-like country. Um, I think we'll hear that uh, Japan is reciprocating. It's pulling its weight. It's, it's going to be uh, doing everything the United States wants and more. Um, and we're going to see the United States uh, embracing the Japanese reforms, that this is uh, good, that our national security strategies are truly aligned. We'll also be hearing about uh, how on technology and trade policy, um, there is a, an ever stronger commitment to working jointly. I'm not sure whether we'll hear specifics out of that, maybe something on pursuing the next generation 
um, telecommunications and in quantum and others. But I think these will still be general declarations about the intent. I think they're aligned on those policies in general, but the specifics are still very difficult to sort out. We may also hear something about um, Russia. We will indeed, because um, Japan is leading the way with mobilizing the G7 uh, countries and, and Prime Minister Kishida came to the United States via Europe um, to stand up over time to Russian aggression in Ukraine. He does not want them to lose heart or to uh, lose attention. And that's a, a, a message for Washington as well as for Europe. Um, and I think the, uh, and that's an unusual message because usually the message would be don't get bogged down in Europe, you know, pay attention to us in Asia. And here you have the Prime Minister of Japan uh, talking about, no, these issues are linked in Europe and Asian security. So maintain deterrence and strength and work together in unity. Um, and then finally, I should mention about South Korea's uh, announcement from President Yoon Suk-yeol this week that nuclear weapons are an option for Korea. It garnered a lot of headlines as it, as it should. It's a shocking uh, sort of statement of uh, by the, the leader of South Korea, but it's not an announcement to build nuclear weapons. It's not even a request to see the redeployment of nuclear weapons back on the, on the Korean Peninsula. It's rather a warning that if we, the Koreans, cannot figure out how to operationalize our own three axis, missile defense, kill chain, and sort of punishment uh, sort of uh, forces, um, to deter North Korea, we're going to have to think about uh, a nuclear option. Um, and it's partly a way to get leverage over the United States, which is engaged in uh, strong extended deterrence discussions. But South Korea wants to see something that's more NATO-like, even nuclear sharing, quote unquote, um, even if that doesn't have quite uh, you know meaning in the real world. To the South Korean people, it means that they have more say over the nuclear weapons that the United States uses to deter North Korean aggression. Um, it's also though a way to, to sort of prompt China to do more, to do something, uh, to reign in North Korea. And it's a way to say to Japan that uh, we're with you, but we also are gonna be strong too. Uh, just like you, we can be transformational. Uh, in the United States, by the way, it's also a way to say South Korea is gonna have to do more just as Japan is doing more in this changing global order where the United States cannot simply stare down North Korea, China, Russia, Iran uh, on its own. Just before uh, we go, Dove, you have one very important thing uh, you want to add, even though we're out of time, but this is important. Uh, put it in there and we can discuss it uh, in full next week. Yes, Jake Sullivan uh, has said he's going to Israel. He has said that given the Iranian uh, drones that are uh, being sent to Russia, that the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, is not a priority right now. But on the other hand, he's going to have some really tough talks uh, with this new government about some of their other policies. Guys, that's all the time uh, we've got. Uh, thanks very much uh, to you all uh, for joining us. Hope you guys have a very uh, good uh, holiday uh, weekend. Just a production note to celebrate the holiday. We are going to be off on Martin Luther King Day, but our uh, the Sunday roundtable will be on time uh, and we will resume our coverage on Tuesday with our first air power uh, podcast uh, episode that will be airing uh, in our daily schedule for the next couple of weeks. Guys, thanks very much again. Have a great uh, holiday weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much.